whether you're going to be a Sunday school teacher or a deacon or a pastor, what happens is a very similar thing to what happens when you uh, bring a baby home. Do you all remember that feeling? Uh, when you go to the hospital and there's all these nurses and doctors and you, and, and you feel pretty good. You know, they bring the baby in for a few hours at a time and then they take the baby back away. But then there's something that happens when you come out of the hospital and you put the baby in the car seat and you start to drive home and you have this realization as a dad or a mom, we're going to have to do this on our own. And that's when your wife gets on the phone and calls her mother. She's like, can you come stay with us for a few weeks? And that, that, right, that's what happened. Because it, you, you sense this huge responsibility. Or maybe uh, the, the similar thing happens uh, just whenever you get married and a husband's driving, you're driving off to your honeymoon and you're thinking, okay, now I've been responsible for me, now I'm responsible to care for her. And we have this, uh, this responsibility, this huge responsibility. And that's really how the calling uh, it really is the calling of a church member as well. It's this calling that we have as members of the church to care for one another and to consider ourselves responsible for more than just ourselves. And I began to sense that in myself that, that, that maybe God was giving me more of a shepherd's heart and was cultivating that within me. And I think that's what happens this growth in my heart that caused me to sense that I'm not just responsible for my family, but in some ways God was calling me to be responsible for a church. We came here in 2013, and we'll celebrate 10 years in First Baptist Olney on August 25th. And I can say that I've been brought up my whole life in church. I've held ministry positions in seven different churches. And yet when we come to the passage that we're going to study today, I feel not only unqualified to preach about the past, the, these verses, but it, when I've studied this week, it's even caused me to feel unqualified to even be your preacher. But the reality is, churches need pastors. And, and even as hard as it is to preach these, and maybe I wish someone else would come up here and preach these verses, it's good for, for us as a church to look at these verses, to remind me what I need to be to you. And to remind us all, I guess the point of the sermon, if I could just spill the beans of what the whole sermon is about, is that the pastor is called to be an example to the flock. The pastor is called to be a visible reminder of what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. Why is the pastor supposed to set that example? Because people are supposed to follow it. So, yes, these qualifications are saying, Chad, here's what you need to look like as a pastor. Here's how you're qualified as a pastor so you can lead other people to, to develop these qualities in their own selves. So don't just look at this and say, well, the preacher's got to be this, but I don't have to be that. This is a calling for all of us to become more like Jesus Christ. Now, in the, the New Testament, there are certain words used for pastor. We use the term pastor uh, in our church almost exclusively no one usually calls me a shepherd no one usually calls me an overseer no one usually calls me an elder but the words pastor elder bishop overseer they're all the same things that's the job i have it's an teaching a particular teaching office in the church a pastor elder overseer bishop uh, shepherd is all all the same things when you see them discussed in the new testament and so our passage today is in Titus chapter 1, verses 5-9, through 9, discusses the qualifications for an elder. So Paul is talking to Titus. They've been on Crete 
which is an island there in the Mediterranean Sea. They've been doing missionary work in the cities there in Crete. And Paul says in in verse 5 of chapter 1, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order. That word order is like where we get the word orthodontist, straightening things, straightening teeth, orthodoxy, straightening thought. He says, I want you to straighten things out there in Crete and appoint elders in every town as I direct you. Notice that the word elders is plural. A church should have a plurality of elders, pastors, shepherds. If there was one thing that I would change about the way we do things as Southern Baptists in general, is I would, I would to bring us more in line with what the Scripture teaches in this area, is that even though we would still have a senior pastor, sort of a captain, uh, first among equals or so, and you could still have people on staff like a youth minister or something like that, is that there would also be a number of other men who would help me in this shepherding duty, who would help bear that responsibility. Why is that? Why is that the way the Bible teaches that there shouldn't just be one pastor of a church, there should be multiple pastors of a church because there's safety in numbers. It's easy for one person to become a tyrant. It's easy for one person to disqualify themselves and wreck the ship. But if you've got a plurality there of people leading and shepherding, there's safety in numbers. That's why every time you see the word pastors in the New Testament, elders, it's always plural. You know, it was odd for me to go to that church, and when the man walked out and he said, I'm the deacon, I thought, that's weird. I've never been to a church that just had one deacon. But they, they really were such a small church that they, he was about the only guy that was there. It was him and everybody else was a woman. But we would go there and he, would, he was the deacon. That was unusual. You know, if, if the New Testament, if the folks that were part of the church in the New Testament came here and I said, I'm the pastor, that would be weird to them. Because, because their churches all had pastors. There was a plurality there. And, and so that's the biblical model and perhaps one day, as a congregation, we'll decide. That's, it's not my decision to how we structure that. That's the congregation's decision as to how we structure our leadership. But it would be so much easier uh, to teach and to lead and to care and even to, to, to do things that are difficult, that, re- that require discipline and, and going and having hard conversations if you, did, if you weren't alone. And I think that's why God set it up for the pastors of, pastorship of a church to be a team because it isn't so much easier when you got a wingman, somebody else going with you to help you in those, those most difficult of conversations. So even though we don't have a plurality of pastors, when there is something difficult like that, there are certain guys here that I believe have those shepherding qualities and that shepherding heart, and you better believe that those are the guys I lean on and call. So even though we don't function that way on paper, I try to function that way as a pastor because it's a lonely job. And I sure appreciate the guys that come alongside of me and help me care for you. And they're not trying to rule this church. Does the pastor rule the church? The pastor is not the ruler of the church. The pastor is the leader of the church. But he's not the ruler. Who's our ruler? Well, first off, our ruler is Jesus Christ. Secondly, we are ruled by the congregation. How many votes do I get at the business meeting? How many votes does everybody else get at the business meeting? One, right? So we all have one vote. And so that's how we make decisions. A church full of people that are members who are filled with the Holy Spirit, when we're encountering these decisions we have to make, it's not a, group, it's not a little group of people that are making decisions for the whole church. It's the congregation 
But we want to say that we are led by pastors, we're ruled by the congregation, and our church operates functionally the way the congregation makes decisions is by committees. We appoint committees, they make recommendations to us, and then we vote on those recommendations. Titus's task was to appoint elders in every city. So there would be pastors for these churches in every city there on Crete. Well, how do you know who to appoint? Here's Titus. He's going to the city. His job is to appoint elders. How does he know who to appoint? Well, Paul says first, look at their home and look at their family. Look at verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, and he uses above reproach twice in this passage. He says, if anyone's above reproach, the husband of one wife, now that doesn't really, you know, there's debates on what that means. That doesn't necessarily mean polygamy. He can't be a polygamist. I mean, of course, it would mean that, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's saying, if a man is faithful to his wife, the literal translation, if he's a one-woman man, if he's faithful to his wife, because you can have men that have only been married to one person who aren't faithful to their wife. The, the qualification is, is he a faithful husband? So he's above reproach. He's a faithful husband. And his children are believers. Now that word could also be translated faithful. Uh, his children need to be of good character. Of course, he doesn't have control over whether his children believe the gospel. But while the children are in his home, what the qualification there is is that his children should respect him. He should be the kind of dad that his children respect. Even if they disagree with him, they're faithful to him. And his children should not be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now we get a little bit a better understanding of this in the parallel passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, where Paul tells Timothy that the elder must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So we kind of use those two passages to understand what they're meaning. Use one more clear passage to interpret the less clear passage. He says, For if, some, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Why is he telling him to look to the home? Because the home is an incubator for leadership. If a man is a tyrant at home, he's going to be a tyrant in the church. So we watch a man... We watch his relationships. How does he treat his wife? How is he with his children? Does he care for his children and his wife? Or does he make their life miserable? A terrible husband will make a terrible leader. The man who cares for himself. The man who uses people to get what he wants. Who does not have a heart of a servant. Who is arrogant and unloving. He will come to church with his small mind. And he will feel like a big shot. And those people are a cancer in the church. And you should never put them in a leadership position. Why? Because the church is a big family. And so the, just like families can be vulnerable to the, to the leadership of the husband, a church can be vulnerable to the leadership of a tyrant. Look at verse 7. For an overseer, as God's house manager, as his steward. So just like he has to manage his house, you're calling a pa pastor to manage God's house. He must be above reproach. That means when he's scrutinized, he can't be convictable. Now, does that mean he's sinless? Well, if, if that's what it means, I need to resign right now because the only pastor that we could have is Jesus because he's the only one who's actually without sin. But what, what it really saying there above reproach as the guy, what he believes, he needs to be striving for it. There doesn't need to be an inconsistency in what he, the way he lives or what he says and what he believes and what he's proclaiming from the pulpit. What he confesses, he must be consistent with what he confesses. That's hard. That's really hard. And I, and I feel like I fail in that one, but I want you all to know I'm aiming for it. 
I'm striving to, to, to be above reproach, even though I'm a failure. I was a failure the other, uh, a couple of months ago. We're in Archer City. It's hard to watch a basketball game in Archer City, especially if the other team's winning. And so here we were, and of course, you know why we were losing. Number one reason, the referees were terrible. <laughs> Number two reason, our boys weren't hustling. That's a bad combination when you're sitting up in the stands. And you start yelling, oh, come on, oh, hustle, run, run harder. Ding. I get a text message. Oh, it's the pastor of First Baptist Archer City. <laughs> Sitting on the other side. And he says to me, better watch that temper, Brother Chad. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> that was embarrassing. Alistair Begg tells a story. He says, you know how pastors are, my kids know this, when you're driving down the road, going to Graham, and you're reflecting on the church, and you start going on a tirade, and, and, and Alistair Begg was talking about how he was in the car with his children, and he was upset about something at the church, and he said something uncharitable about one of the members, and he says, from the back seat, I could hear my son, and here he says, another kind and loving word from your pastor. <laughs> <clears throat> says he just wanted to pull that car right over into a tree, right? That's, that's, that is how, that's how you feel when you're the pastor. You just feel like you're failing all the time. But we have to strive and I need you all to pray for me. I'm certainly not sinless. Um, and every pastor wrestles with the flesh. And, and, but I hope that I always will hate my sin. And I hope that I'm the first one that's concerned about my witness. The first one to apologize when someone's hurt. And, if a man, and that's another thing about looking at the home. If a man can't apologize, men don't get such a hard heart where you can't apologize to your kids when you hurt their feelings. And when they're in there crying, and we make our kids cry a lot because we're not thoughtful the way their moms are. But when we do that, we, got, we have to go in there and you have to swallow your pride. Not just for your sake of your relationship with your wife, but with those children too. And you go in there and say, you know what, I shouldn't have talked like that. Will you forgive me? And my kids have always forgiven me. So watch a man. Will he apologize to his kids? Because if he won't apologize to his wife and his kids, he won't be an apologetic person whenever he's called on to apologize. Don't let him near the pulpit if he's like that. Paul lists five more negatives in our passage. He says he must not be arrogant. That means he can't be smug or self-satisfied. He can't just sit back and be pleased with himself. He shouldn't be quick-tempered. If you've got a temper, you can't be a pastor. If you've got a quick temper, you don't need to be a leader in the church because one of the fruit of the Spirit is patience and long-suffering. Can't be a drunkard means literally you can't look long at the wine. If the man's more concerned about what he wants to drink than he is about his uh, flock, don't choose him to be your pastor. He can't be a violent man. That means he can't be a striker, literally. Can't be a striker is what it says. He can't be quarrelsome. If you've got a man that argues and it's argumentative, not qualified. Or greedy for gain. Listen, you don't go into the ministry to make a bunch of money. But there are people who do. Don't listen to them. <laughs> okay? Uh, now, that doesn't mean that there's a problem with, with people that, you know, just are blessed and that, you know, write a book that becomes a bestseller or something like that. But if a person's going into the ministry to make money, that's a problem. He can't be greedy. He can't uh, be, be looking for dishonest gain trying to take advantage of people, prey upon their desire for spirituality and, 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 their, and, their, and their vulnerability and basically be charging them for his uh, spiritual services. 
Then he lists three positive characteristics. Verse 8, he must be hospitable. Now that's interesting. What does that mean? Uh, He must be hospitable. That means he needs to be friendly. He needs to be a lover and a welcomer of strangers. Uh, Whenever people are, when he's around people he doesn't know, he needs to be kind to them. And then I love this, and this is what we should all strive to be. It says that he must be a lover of what is good. Isn't that something that should describe all of us as Christians? Do you love the good? I mean, think about that. Do you you get out of bed today like, Lord, help me love what's good today? And I think we're really good at hating what's bad. Christians are known for all sorts of things, but I think I'm afraid sometimes what Christians are most known for is what we're against. And that really does give people a skewed vision of what we really are, doesn't it? We don't get up in the morning and look to judge and condemn. Who, who deserves judgment and condemnation? More than us. We're the people that realize it. That's why we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God and ask Him to save us. But what if we got up every day and said, I'm going to look for the good. I'm going to look for ways I can encourage people. Ways that I can make things better in my family and in my church and in my community. Let's be a lover of the things that God loves. It says here he must be self-controlled. Balanced, moderated, upright, holy, and disciplined. What does all this mean? It means that the pastor must be an example and he must be a witness. And really what this is saying is is summing it up saying he can't be a worldly person. Um, The pastor is always going to seem a little bit strange and out of step in the world but not of the world. One thing we, Melissa and I talked about the other day at the store where you know we go around Stewart's and she said isn't it weird that when we walk into a place like we can tell that we're making people uncomfortable that's a weird thing about being a preacher that I didn't have that when I was a teacher or a lawyer we go into a place and and there's like oh there's the you know and of course it's fun like kids that come to team kid like I know you and I'm like I think I know you too and that's fun but then there's other people that, like, you go to a store and people avoid you. That's awkward. Uh, and so you kind of always feel like, you know, like, did I just blow, did I just ruin the vibe by walking into the store? Uh, what, what happened? Or people will cuss around me and they'll apologize for cussing. And I'm like, you don't have to apologize to me. I'm not the one that's offended. Take it up with the Holy God, you know. Uh, but that, it's, it's difficult. Uh, but that's the calling, right? To be out of step with the world. When you're a pastor, you can't be a person who says, who cares what other people think? Uh, we're all tempted to be that way. But we always, as Christians, must consider ourselves more important, other, consider others more important than ourselves. It's just the reality of the whole thing. And that's hard because there's so many things that we don't do and we don't say, and you have to be so careful about how you're perceived. And many times, uh, being a pastor what's interesting about it, and I hate getting up here and talking about, I didn't want to get up here and just talk about being a pastor because most people aren't pastors, but I think it does help to understand this a little bit, so I kind of, kind of went down this road when I was writing the sermon, is that not just for pastors, this would apply to all of us, but we, we must consider our witness. There's a lot of things that we, we wind up not doing, not because we can't do those things, but because we realize it wouldn't be wise to do those things. I remember I was a, a couple, maybe last year, I was at a family gathering with some of my cousins, extended family, and they were, you know, I was sitting there, I was drinking tea, and they were all drinking other drinks, and one of them said, well, do you drink? Or maybe they asked me, can you drink? I don't, I don't remember what the question was, 
I didn't think it was that big of a deal. And I said, no, there's no rule that says I can't drink. Um, I just said I choose not to because I don't want to do anything. I don't want to do anything that might trip somebody up. And, you know, one thing we realize when you work in the ministries, you work with a lot of people that suffer from addictions. You see the destruction that uh, something out of control can, can, how it can wreak havoc. And so it's better for me just to always, you know, I had the, the thought, you know, you say, oh, <clears throat> one drink or this wouldn't be a big deal, and, and, and maybe it wouldn't. But, I, but there was one morning where, um, I'm sorry I'm going on so long in the sermon, but there was one morning where I got a phone call, six in the morning, and, we, and the pastor called me. We rushed out to a house that was on fire, and we had had two, one, one girl that I had baptized uh, was actually uh, killed in the fire, and her brother, actually, and her brother was, and her mother, all three of them perished in the fire, came to find out that they had actually all three been murdered. And then this person that murdered them had set the house on fire. And we went out to this murder scene, called out of the blue, like, you remember, just called me, woke me up, get, put your shoes on, we got to go. <clears throat> Five minutes, we're there. And I always have had this thought as a pastor, what if something happened to you at the hospital, and you're at the emergency room, and, and, and what if I came in and I had liquor on my breath, or I've been drinking? See, that's one thing about being a pastor that, that I think is really important. And, and I would say also as a parent, too. Be careful what, you, what positions you put yourself into. Because don't ever put yourself in a position where you're not able to serve somebody. You know? So for that, that, was, that was a moment I had of, of conviction. I said, I'm just going to try to always be sober and alert. If I, because you never know in a moment's notice when you're going to be needed uh, to come out and pray for people. And I would not want to damage the witness in that way. Now, the, that's, that's great, but that's like so easy to not, like, it's like one of the easiest things in the world to not uh, drink alcohol. Uh, so here's, the, here's where I fail, though. But am I also always ready to minister otherwise? What about when I have a bad attitude? What about when I'm gossiping? What about when I'm angry? Whatever it could be. Like, I do so many other things that do spoil my witness. I don't want y'all to be proud of me just because I'm able to not drink something. Like, I I like don't drink most things every day, okay? Uh, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But that's, what we're, that's the struggle that we're in, isn't it? We have the freedom to do a lot of things, but we choose not to do those things. It's like this morning. Um, you know, there are things in our house that make a lot of noise. One of those is me when I sneeze. And so uh, I sneezed this morning, and Melissa gave me a look. She said, that was really loud. But there's other things in our house that make noise. Cabinet doors, how we stomp around in the morning, uh, how we open and close the, the cabinet doors, the way we talk. Now, do we have the freedom to be as loud as we want? Yes. But we all know that Torvi is sleeping in the next room. And if we wake her up, we know Melissa is going to kill us. <laughs> so out of love for Melissa and Torvi, here's how, here's, and here, this is how we walk around, right? You got a little kid in the house? You're just, you're just, you're stepping up, you know, that board makes a noise. Okay, I'm going to, you know, right? So, so if you just watch somebody trying not to wake up the baby, it looks silly because they're just doing all this. If you just watch, what, what's going on? Why are you acting like this? You're the man of the house. Slam that door if you want to. But that's not the way you live, is it? Because you're concerned about other people. And so that's the way we live our life. Not necessarily just tiptoeing around and kid gloves and all that stuff, but we're careful to live in such a way where the first thought on our mind is, does this cause, uh, does this cause the kingdom of, of God 
to, uh, to be be spread and to be proclaimed? Or does this cast aspersions on Jesus, the way I'm living? And so that's the, the attitude that the elder must have. He has liberty, but he's constrained in many ways by love for his people. So don't appoint an elder just because he's a good dude. There's actually a job to it. Look at verse 9. Here's what the job is. He must hold firmly, uh, firm to the trustworthy word as taught so he may be able... Well, I ran out of time. Uh, so he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. What is the job of the pastor? The job of the pastor is to hold firm to the word as taught. The job of the pastor is to teach and to hold firm to the word. So I thank God for settling those doubts in my mind many years ago that if there's one thing I do know is that God's word is never wrong. You hold tight to that. Then he must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Now you might have thought, well, I thought the pastor's job was to do this and to do this and to do this. No, the pastor's job is to teach, instruct, and rebuke and to hold fast to the Word. He must be an example to be qualified, but his job is not just to be an example. His job is to teach the church and preach to the church. That's called Word work. And it's very difficult to prioritize that because there are so many other things that are pressing and so many other issues that come up in our fellowship and in our congregation. Sometimes it's easier for me to be your friend, and so I kind of will drift into that But I have to always remember that my job is to to bring the Word of God into your life as a spiritual leader. And the church must be taught because if we don't know the truth, how will we know if we're being lied to? So what can you take away from the sermon? You're thinking, wow, I don't know. Well, here's what I would say. Let's talk and pray about the idea of a plurality of elders. I think that's always a good thing to think about. And secondly, I'd like for you to consider, as I said at the beginning, why does the pastor have to be qualified? Why does he have to be an example? Why is he a word worker? And that's because my job is to spur you on to do all of those things. To be a witness. To be an example. To be someone who is wrapped up and who finds life and excitement and joy in God's Word. As God uses that Word and the Holy Spirit to transform your life and to make you more like Jesus Christ. It's all about the example, isn't it? We are to be witnesses in this world to show people who can't see Jesus because He's in heaven, but they can see us. And they can see Christ in us. You want to go find Jesus? This is His body. And so as we function as the body of Christ, are we setting that example of someone who's following Him? How is your witness? How is your example? Let's be a church that loves what is good so that people may know what is truly good. That they may also with us follow Jesus, our true shepherd. 